this creativity and this idea that I could maybe use creativity for good really stuck with me. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. Today, I'm talking to Ashley Axios. She's an international speaker, strategic creative, and an advocate for design's ability to break barriers and create positive social change. She does all this as the chief experience officer and an owner of Coforma, a digital consultancy and design firm that crafts creative solutions and builds technology products that help bring about equity and improve lives across a wide range of communities. Prior to her role at Coforma, Ashley was at Automatic, a technology company with a mission to democratize publishing and commerce, where she formed and led the in-house creative agency for marketing, communications, and brand identities. And before that, she served as the creative director and a digital strategist for the Obama White House, bridging two presidential terms in the Office of Digital Strategy. She's also a former chair of the board for AIGA, the Professional Association for Graphic Design, and a past president of AIGA Washington, D.C. chapter, where she formed .gov Design, an initiative connecting and empowering government designers. Right now, she's using her skills and superpowers to design systemic pathways to help those suffering with long COVID. It's both fascinating and meaningful work. Here's Ashley. I'm Ashley Axios. I live and work in Washington, D.C. I do work in the government sector. I'm all about using design for positive social and cultural change in, in the ways that I can. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Before we get into all of that, I like to go back to the formative years. Can you tell me about your childhood? I was born in Northern Virginia, have an older brother, and it wasn't too long before my parents got divorced. We moved up, my mom, my brother, and I to New Jersey to move in with my grandmother. It was a nice kind of combination suddenly being immersed in my grandmother's world. Her and my grandfather had kind of made their way and earn money and had developed this fine sense of taste, but we were still very much finding our own way as a family. And my mom was kind of going back to school and figuring out next steps for her career and getting resituated. So I find myself having a lot of time alone, but surrounded by both fine things and kind of emerging spaces and it kind of went into my creative headspace a whole lot between 
dancing and singing and making art, I entertained myself a good portion of the time and just found the world fascinating and interesting. I used to actually walk around and sell the little things that I made to the neighbors just to kind of make friends and connections. But my grandma's neighbors were men and women her own age, and they were really kind (laughs) to buy my (laughs) handmade earrings. And, you know, (laughs) I'm sure they did not need any of that stuff. It was a neat little creative world. I was kind of a latchkey kid, too, part of that time, too. So, you know, head back from school, enter my grandma's house, but I'd also spend time with uh, her next door neighbor, Mrs. Skelton, talking about like her life and journey. And I think she was in her 70s or something like that at the time. So I had a lot more flexibility and kind of meandering and wandering than I think a lot of kids did in a kind of decade. I love that you had a few generations to interface with. I mean, it sounds like selling your, your handmade earrings and hanging out with Mrs. Skelton was actually kind of an extended family and, I don't know, a lovely access to another generation. It just felt so natural to me at the time, but I think I've realized more over time what an honor that was to be able to have that kind of exposure and context and sense of history. And I think it made me maybe a little like emo because, you know, (laughs) got to hear people's like regrets and missing family and stuff like that at early time, but also like empathy. I know I think it builds maybe faster when you have those layers of exposure. I bet you're right. In the same way that travel helps you not be ethnocentric and helps you kind of see the world through the different perspectives, having access to the perspective of even just an older generation that's experiencing a different kind of health situation, different economic situation, and also has a lot more like hindsight would maybe even give you a wider lens on on what this lived experience is. Oh, absolutely. Me and Mrs. Skelton, we'd talk about like termites in her house. Like we were talking about real things she was dealing with. (laughs) So I learned a lot of things I definitely didn't need to know at the time, but it's helpful. That's life. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So latchkey kid, maybe a little emo, um, making art, singing, dancing, totally comfortable hanging with the older people. What did this translate like into your teenage years? I had it a little rough for a while. We moved around quite a bit as my mom was like really trying to get her own bearing and grappling with being a single mother and really wanting to stand on her own feet in all these different ways. So I had a difficult time moving between different environments, not feeling as grounded with friend groups. But I think fortunately, it helped me lean even further into art as almost an art therapy vantage point. And I was lucky enough, I mean, I don't even think I realized until recently how fantastic my extended family was, but I had a chance to job shadow one of my mom's cousins who worked in the ad industry at Uniworld Group, a black advertising agency, and get exposure to the ad world. And I knew I didn't want to sell things. I wasn't drawn to the ad world, but this creativity and this idea that I could maybe use creativity for good really stuck with me. And I was a little precious about like my craft already, like spending time drawing and making things. And that was starting to be recognized in little ways throughout high school. But I got some nudges from my mom to try this vocational program. And against the advice of career counselors at my high school who said that nobody with good grades would go to 
a vocational program and all sorts of tropes. Um, I, oh, and, man. Yeah. It was, it was I've heard really so many terrible sad. stories about guidance counselors steering kids <laughs> the wrong way. <laughs> yeah. Luckily, my, my mom was like pretty persistent because she had met this wonderful woman, Judy Sobko, who ran the in New Jersey, the Monmouth County Vocational School Programs Design Group. She had left working at the Taj Mahal in Atlantic City for some time, a really terrible situation from all that she shared there to just venture out and wanted to teach kids everything that she learned and how design could be. And I didn't know that I'd like design and ended up seeing it through going to this program as this huge gateway and way that I could continue to fine tune my craft. And I didn't know how these pieces would fit together, but use design for good. And um, I was encouraged by her to, you know, look at different art schools. She said, you know, RISD would be perfect for me. And she was just such a mentor and a support when I really needed it. Somebody who truly cared about her students and was over the churn of the workplace and just about making an impact herself. I could see it in her and it just encouraged me to really push a little bit further and and apply myself to apply to RISD. And I applied a few other places as well. I just like to really celebrate and shout out these people that had such a major impact on people's lives. I love that your mom kind of encourage you to take this vocational program, despite the guidance counselor. And I also can see how all of these experiences are stacking up. And nobody knows what they mean when you're that age. Nobody really knows how they're going to start to influence your professional life until you find your way. But it doesn't make them any less important, right? They need to be there. They need to be the raw material that you end up shaping your life with. So Judy Sabka, um, yay for her. And you did apply to RISD and you did get in. You chose graphic design to get your BFA. Can you talk about the college years and what they were for you? I mean, I know they can sometimes blow your world right open, or sometimes they can be anticlimactic. What was your experience? I think a mixed bag. One, like blown away at what to me felt like opulence and decadence. And like, the place was just so fancy. (laughs) I was like, what have I gotten myself into? I thought like art schools are just supposed to be like, you know, messy places for creative craft. And it had, you know, it's a, it's a major institution. And so I think I saw some of those aspects right away um, at RISD and I had to shake that off to a degree. And then I found just people who are so creative and inspirational and unique and was really inspired by that. And then I went through, I think, a stage of being a little bit frustrated because I was trying to push creativity to share important messages. And in some of the contexts, the work that I was doing, people didn't care as much about the messages. It was kind of a different time for design. And so I definitely had my moments of frustration and, you know, being given a project and making it about female genital mutilation or, you know, apartheid South Africa. And folks are like, what are you doing? Or like making my degree project about social justice uh, initiatives and how to actually pull those facts and this history out for this broad audience. How could you make this digestible content that they could get a little bit of at a time? And they're like, this isn't marketing. This isn't political design. I'm not, you know, I'm not quite sure what you're doing. This was a stamp project or book project. (laughs) 
But I kept pushing and I took that kind of ownership myself that I was paying for this. I was kind of terrified with the amount that I was paying and taking out loans for and the fact that my mom was contributing and really needed it to pay off, but needed it to be right for me. So I just kept kind of pushing in those directions and challenging myself on writing and communicating about the things that I cared about on top of the task as it was assigned. And those layers, I think, really benefited me over time, even though I felt a little lonely at times in that work and also a little lonely and just that the demographics were still kind of changing. And so didn't always see a ton of folks like myself around me, but that made me stronger, I think. When, when were you at RISD? Yeah, I graduated in 2008, so during a nice recession. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you were ahead of your time, I think, in terms of activism and social justice and the over overlap of those two with design being really mainstream. They've always worked together, but there definitely hasn't been necessarily a path of economic viability that includes all of that. You could tell what was meaningful and purposeful to you, and you needed to follow that in order to make this education be something that you could work with for the rest of your life. But the messaging around you was was also like, here's how you use creativity to make a living. And it wasn't those things. Yeah, just kind of like pulling together these pieces that felt really separate. I would find my you know, community or like a respite by going to the Office of Multicultural Affairs and like just talking about poetry and the black diaspora and being able to like go ah, like a big sigh, <laughs> sigh of relief. And then, you know, go back and kind of into, this is dramatic phrasing, right? But almost like <laughs> back into the fight a little bit with like my work in the studio and like, you know, having those conversations. But you know, I think in a way that prepared me for some of, you know, not that it should be this way, but for some of the working world in a way that school should, to some degree, um, should be more of a conversation. And <laughs> I still got a ton out of it. And um, I'm so refreshed to see how many students now, just from the conversations I'm having, are passionate about some of the same things and how much the conversations and education, like, I feel like everybody's now read teaching to t- transgress <laughs> and starting to really like shift the dynamics much more significantly. So that also brings me a lot of hope so many years later. Well, I think that's true, but I also think that you may have been instrumental. You being the type of person you were at the time that you were there, you may have laid some groundwork. I talked with a grad student at, who's at RISD now about this, but there's a certain amount of assimilation that's necessary and a certain amount of challenge. And I don't know that I've always gotten that balance right. And so I think about that dynamic pretty consistently, but it's not all on any one person. But if I did any little part to help move it forward, I would be you know, grateful and thankful to have done so. Let's move into your professional career, because that's not the only time you went to someplace that was opulent and fancy and, you know, got down to brass tacks and started to do the messy work of strategizing. I know that you spent four years spanning two terms as the creative director and a digital strategist for the Obama White House. And I want to hear all about that. But can you kind of lay the groundwork for what it was like out of school and how you got to a place where working in the Obama White House was an opportunity for you? 
Yeah, of course, right? Because it feels like such a jump. Anyways, (laughs) how did did that happen? Um, When I left RISD, I made the choice to move to Washington, D.C., and a big part of that decision was to be closer to where there were so many nonprofits and cause-based organizations that were doing meaningful social work. And it took me a little bit to even crack into that. I also knew that there were skills I had to continue building. And so I was kind of desperate when I first left school, just feeling that recession and feeling the clock was ticking till loan payments and all that stuff that I'm sure folks can relate to, at least in the United States. I was kind of hustling pretty hard and was having a hard time in the recession, finding a job and actually took a paid internship. And that turned into a job and was building more skills in digital because it wasn't as much a part of the RISD curriculum at the time. Then intentionally built some skills with like client management and relationship, working in a small design studio and wanted to go into some more interactive messaging and found an opportunity to work at a company that did museum interactive pieces and and educational institution pieces and worked on part of the permanent exhibits for the Henry Ford Museum and the Museum of Tolerance and really got to grab attention of folks who are passing by and think about touchscreens and interactivity to a different degree. And so if probably you know, felt like I was drifting all over the place, but I was building these skills over time and hoping at the time to find the right kind of nonprofit or something like that. I didn't have one issue that I was passionate about. There are so many issues I was passionate about. So I was trying to figure out what that would look like, but just hoping for the right nonprofit job. And I finally got a job in the National Wildlife Federation. And I also started serving on the Board of Directors for AIGA Washington, D.C., the Professional Association for Design, the D.C. chapter. And I ended up meeting the creative director at the time, Kodiak Star, for the Obama White House at a happy hour and just chatting with him. And I learned what they were doing and kind of the team dynamic. It sounded really fascinating. And I feel like I almost joke about this most of the time when I tell it, but he, he reached out later because they were looking for an art director and I actually worked for a couple months trying to find them the right person because I believed it had to be somebody who had more than a few years out of school and who was tremendous. And I was trying to recruit for them, like the best people I could think of for this spot. And also had some hesitation in my mind of what it would be like to work in government as much as I respected the Obama White House and the administration. I wanted them to have the best. And I was also like, how creative could you be? working in the White House or working in the federal government. I'm not quite sure. But through that process of ongoing conversations with Kodiak and and looking through kind of Cody, um, as his nickname is, like talking through the role and everything that they needed, and being like, what you really need is me. And this sounds more and more perfect every day. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, okay, you know what? Like, maybe I should come in for an interview. And he's like, yeah, why don't you do that? And, you know, I'm like, wait, was that the point the whole (laughs) time? And I'm just kind of dense, quite possibly. But it was really natural. It was probably one of the easiest interviews I had, probably in part because of how many conversations we'd had until that point, but with the entire Office of Digital Strategy team 
And so, yeah, I started as an art director there. And that first little bit was like, can I do this for a week? There's, it's a lot, you know, like I'll just take it a small piece at a time. And, um, it, and it built up over time. When you say, can I do this for a week and taking it a small piece of it at a time, was that you working with yourself to not be overwhelmed or is that you not having both feet in, not sure that you wanted to stay there? I think at first it was, you know, being perfectly honest, a little bit of both. It was a change in quite a few different ways. So I had some imposter syndrome about being there and I feel like it showed even just in how I dressed at first. I was like, how do you... (laughs) how do you work at the White House? You know, there's no manual for this. But then also, like, it took me a little bit to figure out how my values really were going to align in my work moving forward. And when I first joined, you know, the best looking stuff, as much as I wanted to do work that was meaningful and impactful, was also a driver. And I think part of that was instilled through my design education. And so I had this feeling sometimes like, oh, this work could be better. I'm not as proud as some of the stuff that we put out. But some of the stuff we put out was making a huge impact, was making sure that people were getting health care and was helping people immigrate to the U.S. safely and like doing these incredible things. And so I, I, it took me a little bit of time to really find my footing in what really mattered most and that sometimes the visual aesthetics were going to suffer because in the time that you have to do the most impactful work, the balance was just a little bit different on a faster delivery or taking the time to craft out a more robust message collaboratively with the team. And there are just trade-offs that had to happen. I like to think our our standards also improved over time, but it was an uphill battle on some of that. So that was part of it. Well, I mean, that's the the bigger framework of design, right? Is taking everything into account and then designing to optimize for the greater good. And sometimes, yeah, the trade-offs, they come in to that. But it also sounds like you, as a young professional, were kind of balancing what you had called earlier, like you'd already gotten a little precious about your craft when you were a child, plus the challenge of the right balance of assimilation and challenging Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like all of that was coming together in a total swirl of activity. Yeah. And also just what's the right amount of caffeine to sustain a day at the White House? (laughs) Like there's so many, I had so many questions. There were times I was like, I obviously need to do this farmer style and like eat more in the morning. Like this could be a comedy, but I like, was like, I'm going to go have like chicken and waffles before work. I was like, that was not it, but just comedic, but trying to figure out like, how do you work? sometimes 12 hour days in like a high pressure environment while doing this work. What do I need to follow up on? How do I keep myself there physically, mentally in a consistent manner? There were, there were lots of pieces of it that just took some time to feel out. So it was very layered. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. 
But getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. 
There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. What did you figure out for yourself? I know it's going to be different for everyone, but in a really practical sense, did you go more paleo or like what kind of calorie intake did you need to sustain yourself? I know for me, carbs are a nightmare. So for me, it's like all about being able to kind of snack because I wasn't going to have necessarily the most like consistent meal schedules. So that made things much better and just eating a little bit more frequently and keeping my energy because I could also just get so pulled into the project that a lot of time passed. So having it near made a ton of sense and having consistent amount of kind of coffee around but being cutting myself off and we even adopted it's like life imitating art situation but we'd be like you know what some of these meetings it's just two of us or three of us could be a walk and talk so we do loops around the executive office building just to be able to move a little bit more and release some of that energy in a different way and not just kind of have it build up in my shoulders increasingly rising towards my ears. <laughs> yes. Okay. That's, that's really smart. I like that helps me understand and see the picture a little better. Thank you for that. Can we also zoom out? So you're in the White House and you're working on digital strategy. What are you seeing from that vantage point? Yeah, I mean, it's such an interesting time. I started in early 2012. And this is pre- U.S. Digital Service, pre-18F, pre-Presidential Innovation Fellows, and we're just on the cusp of this little startup in the heart of the Obama White House's the Office of Digital Strategy to say things can happen differently. We can make the web accessible. We can promote transparency and openness. We're on the first open source platform for the website there was some little tests that had started to happen that we were able to really own and embrace and think about how do you scale this out? How do we create forums? We've got these elements of design. Could there be a design system? This is a time where like the foundation for the U.S. web design system started uh, to be a conversation about connecting separate government designers across agencies and groups with various titles and positions and hierarchies to share resources and connect with one another. And so we started doing that through um, AIGA Washington, D.C., through .gov uh, design initiative that a couple of us started. So this was just the beginnings of all of that to help paint a picture and so impressed with how many people have come in and how much all of this has grown in part because of failures, things like healthcare.gov's debacle, for those that remember, kind of being the issue to some degree necessary to create and have the the beginnings of the formation of the U.S. digital service. But in other things, Megan Phillips was the first director of the Office of Digital Strategy, having conversations and helping lend his insight to uh, making the presidential innovation fellows it was for both kind of inspiration and a little bit of the the lessons and the failures and the learnings kind of the real beginning of a lot of the foundation we're seeing in the federal u.s federal government at least today and i know that's inspired a lot in canada and 
has helped set a, a precedent um, in other nations as well. That's pretty exciting. I can remember back to that time as being a real cusp because before that, the government wasn't known for social media or for being very digitally accessible. The websites were almost impenetrable. The information was dense. It was organized in such a way that it didn't feel like they really cared about who was trying to access the information. The web itself was still evolving. And also the information dissemination had historically happened through other means like the mail. And so you're kind of there when everybody realizes, no, the, the future of information dem- dissemination has to happen this way, and we've got to lay the foundation for it right now. Yeah, we're having active discussions on some of that, like how to use social media for the White House and what the responsibilities are, what policies should look like for that. Some things that had even happened almost by accident or just kind of naturally in the past, how can we do them more intentionally? Okay, yes, the State of the Union started as a means to kind of update Congress in a written form. And then through the advent of radio and then TV, this became more of a public-facing update. But how can we use intentionally now the platforms, the tools that we have to engage people, to up the ante for what is being shared, but also to take the level of interaction with the American people and that mission and aim for the democracy a step further for greater participation and awareness instead of this kind of one directional communication. So there are lots of active conversations about all of these aspects, some of them very old and having really deep roots and some of them being very new and explaining to the chief of staff what Snapchat was and uh, (laughs) how that could work and why content disappeared and, you know, some of it very fleeting at the same time. Did you feel valued as a young person in part because of your digital savviness? In the Office of Digital Strategy, we kind of would joke sometimes that we are like the, you know, AV kind of theater kids of the group. So there were a lot of younger folks across the Obama administration, a lot of you know, energy and drive. So we weren't alone in that. But I think there was a degree of, okay, what are those kind of creative, you know, dorky (laughs) kids going to do over from that corner? And we're all working on like traditional comps policies and and kind of broader federal policies. And we pop along and be like, how can we help you? And, you know, coming up with, you know, creative ways to engage the astronauts when they're dropping by. And like, it's such a creative place just because of the nature and the gravity and that like, I mean that almost in a literal sense, that kind of pull that an institution like that has for talent and top industry that like utilizing that to the highest degree possible was such an ambition of ours that we're constantly throwing out creative ideas and trying to be in people's business. <laughs> and did you find in general a sort of good-natured gameness to go along with it? Or did you have a lot of resistance that you had to overcome? It shifted over time. I think there was a great appreciation because of the kind of Obama campaign for the role of social media and design and clear communications in some new ways that had some, even translating to the federal government, although it felt like it needed to be much smaller, had some kind of respect and a little bit more of like a gravitas than it probably would have in any other time. Uh, But we are still kind of the 
the newer kids, the newer department, we were brand new. These other departments had been around for a long time, even if they had different leadership or different structures to them in that administration. And so it took us through much of, honestly, both terms to get a equal seat at the table to traditional communications. And for a long time, we reported through some some different kind of teams, like our communications team at the White House. But we took whatever position we could get, and we're pretty humble about it because we also recognize, while we want to have more access to be able to do more good, we also recognize that kind of perception. Like we had once Susan Rice walking into a room to talk to the chief of staff, right? <laughs> Interrupting you for a moment. It's like, well, that's national security. So, you know, <laughs> I also just kind of know my place. You know, I can, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can sit and I can wait and I can understand why there'll be some deference for some of the other departments and work that's happening. But yeah, there was a lot of respect and appreciation. And I think increasingly as we were starting to help amplify the policy and get people's interest in that work, and seeing us as a huge value add for getting the work done and for getting buy-in on the work, and not just in that marketing sense, but people's true understanding of the ways in which the policies they were developing are actually helping them, which is what they wanted to. So it's like, oh, okay, you're here for what I'm doing too. We can work together. We can be partners in this work. Yeah. You said not just in the marketing sense. It would seem intuitive to me that so much about the messaging and the communication is also measuring the impact and being able to share what's working and what isn't working in order to move needles. Yeah, there's, there's a degree of that. And we had some thoughtful kind of partners who were able to also do, they're doing separate kind of focus grouping on terms and really that kind of user research, qualitative research especially in those early years, was so new to the government. It was like, yeah, you can listen to the American people, but through open channels and forums, from putting these events together, from some traditional means, sitting down and actually interviewing, doing discovery, qualitative research, didn't feel like it was our place as a team. And so luckily, we're able to break down some of that by kind of meeting with other groups who were able to and had that leeway to do focus groups and at least some other listening sessions along the way. But it was very much still budding in the federal government at the time. How would you say that whole chapter of your life shaped you personally? I mean, it sounds very foundational to me. Was it sort of like getting a master's degree in terms of being educational and helping you really fine tune and refine where, where and how you want to spend the rest of your career. Yeah, I think so. And it's also this moment where a lot of things I had been working on separately, just kind of for me for the first time clicked together really well. So while I had those struggles, it was finally like, ah, like, you know, I hadn't thought of politics or federal government. That's not why I moved to DC, but it was like, ah, it makes sense. Like I couldn't choose an issue area so that selection between nonprofits was always a little weird for me. And like, I'm I'm actually getting to work on so many of these issues that are important and they're being elevated to this level because they are critically important. So yeah, that was a hugely foundational, both a kind of seeing everything come together for the first time and also beginning to see where it could go a little bit more clearly instead of that meandering path. And it's still, you know, step by step figuring it out, but it feels a lot more clear to me now. I had to take that step out into a space to run a ton of people operating and I'm like, I've got it. <laughs> I have a grown sense of 
of how I can contribute, how I can do it at scale. And I've learned so much about working in the federal ecosystem that I'm absolutely still applying today with Coforma and using to help, uh, I hope, draw other people to this like just truly incredible, impactful, fulfilling space to work. So uh, you mentioned Coforma. I think this is a good time to start talking about that. Coforma is the digital services agency, which you co-founded and serve as chief experience officer. And I know you had some work experience between the Obama White House and Coforma. So I'd love to know a little bit about what led you to uh, start this agency and then I'd also love like the overview of what the agency is, what, you know, the operation, what's the mission, who are you serving and how does it all go down? I know that's a big question, but it's just your life. So walk <laughs> me through it. <laughs> sure, sure. Just hyper briefly, when I left the White House, I went to Automatic, which is a tech company, the folks behind um, WordPress.com and the WordPress Foundation and a number of other platforms. And one of the things I loved about that was I had gone from being on site at the White House these long hours to suddenly working remote first in this global team and environment. And I loved thinking about that context. I love being able to invest. I built up um, kind of marketing the studio, uh, the kind of marketing communications team for Automatic. And I spent some time there just figuring out how to build remote teams and enable people to have the space and the priorities outside of work in addition to their passions inside of work. Um, and so that plus kind of everything that I learned in the Obama White House, Eduardo and I have brought to Coforma, as you mentioned, our digital service firm. That's Eduardo Ortiz, your co-founder. Yeah, he's our chief executive officer. And we're really both came from the federal ecosystem. I mentioned U.S. digital service uh, earlier. Eduardo had worked there with some overlap in the time that I was uh, in the White House in the Office of Digital Strategy. And we both learned, I think, some similar lessons there and just the appreciation for what it's like to be a public servant and the desire to support those who are doing that hard work from the inside, kind of leveraging agile and empowered positions, sometimes from the outside. I was in a appointee role in the White House, so I knew I was going to be leaving during the administration. U.S. Digital Service, Eduardo was able to work kind of into the next term a little bit, but saw some of that work get blocked by uh, the administration and priorities change and was, I think, frustrated by some of the important work, especially on topics like immigration, that was just going to lose traction despite some amazing beginnings and some groundwork that they'd started to lay. And so this idea of building up our own firm where we could partner with the folks inside government, but also leverage connections and experience outside of government to sometimes keep things moving when it stopped having that progress inside was really, really appealing to us. And we're able to help our our government clients at this point in places like Office of Personnel Management and Center for Medicaid, Medicare Services and Health and Human Services and Veterans Affairs themselves navigate bureaucracy and you know, help figure out how to get funding for some of the projects they want to do because we've had to work on some of those same types of issues inside of government. So they know we kind of have their back <laughs> in a lot of that work and we get it. We emphasize really greatly and we're patient, but we're, we're also building something up where we can be our own bosses and make a fulfilling, thoughtful workplace, an environment where people can thrive 
not just in the the projects and with the impact of the work, but and kind of growing individually and kind of working with some brilliant partners in the work. So I like to think it's that best of all of those worlds starting to come together. And uh, it's just kind of an adventure to to take the time to build it up and to slowly be building our, our footing across these different issue and focus areas. We're really passionate to continue to make an impact. And it does sound like the best of of many worlds in so many ways. You understand how the big machines work. So you can come there with your toolkit and, and speak with authority that you, you kind of know what the people who are embedded in the big machines are going through. But because you have the agility and the ability to kind of come in and also be external, you also have the perspective of being able to see from a different vantage point where the machine needs a little lubrication or needs a replacement part or needs to open up in certain ways and be modified. Yeah. I think it's really interesting. You you work across all these different areas like healthcare, immigration, veteran services, voting and civic engagement, and access to justice and equity. Um, all very important things. And I want to talk about your creative process. One of the things that I think might be a great case study to kind of dig into your creative process is a, a program you developed called Health Plus. Health Plus is something that's now being leveraged by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services to shape their long COVID solutions, which is super relevant, super important, and super necessary. Can you kind of walk me through the backstory of developing what Health Plus is and then how it's being implemented for various solutions, including shaping the long COVID problem that we have? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm sure others will be able to relate to this too, but occasionally you have this ideal way of working and you get into contract negotiations and some of those details end up being written out of the contract. Part of our vision for Health Plus was being able to lock the most ethical, thoughtful approach in to the way of working and having that be bought more as a preset. And so that's part of the inspiration for setting something like this up as a program. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Really, it places one high impact health issue area in the in the center and the focus at a time. And we make sure that that's something that often is more of one of what people have used that term, like kind of wicked contracted problems it has a lot of social political determinants of health um, that make it really hard to solve. And so hasn't gotten maybe the attention that it should have. Those are, those are things that we're more likely to put through the health plus program, but it's really the goal is to understand the lived experiences and needs of people affected by that issue area that's in the center, and then to identify opportunities to accelerate solutions. Um, and those can be solutions from anything from policy, technical, um, support system, types of payment and care based on what we've learned from these patients and the ecosystems around them, the ways that they're failing or succeeding in supporting them. So this is, I think, hugely important because until this point, there hasn't been a ton of this kind of qualitative, patient-centered research within the government ecosystem. And we've been able to do quite a few cycles of Health Plus 
uh, looking at topics like sickle cell disease, which has a huge history of racism, all types of discrimination, and a lack of funding and research from the government and broader health institutions, and really dig into what the needs of the sickle cell disease community are. Topics like Lyme disease, which folks tend to be more familiar with acute Lyme disease, which is treated and then resolves itself. And there's a lot of debate and sometimes hostility about this concept of persistent or chronic Lyme disease that many people are suffering with. And now kind of long COVID, which uh, also shares some characteristics with Lyme disease and being this chronic uh, or kind of persistent health issue after somebody has experienced their acute kind of COVID-19 diagnosis in that experience and treatment. So we're able to really focus on those patient experiences and do in-depth research and kind of document the opportunities, issue areas, involving diverse sets of communities around those patients from clinicians, uh, policymakers, the patient advocacy communities, nonprofits, a whole ecosystem uh, in the research, including uh, developing some initial recommendations for solutions and beginning to even pilot those solutions. So we're really excited to be applying this now to long COVID. Uh, it's obviously so pressing. It hasn't been around that long. There's a lack of research in general on this topic, and it's something that so many people are suffering with today. And so um, selfishly for our team, it gives us you know such hope and relief to be able to do our part to help make an impact and hear, listen to these stories and amplify them so that we can see change. It's really rewarding work to do. Yeah. I don't um, think that's selfish at all. <laughs> hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
we find this stuff so so rewarding because otherwise you know you can just be it's easy to get bogged down in in the problems that we have so it's refreshing to be able to be a part of a solution in a small way but this one is especially uh exciting for us because we had a part to play in supporting the staff for the COVID-19 health equity task force last year as they were developing a set of recommendations for President Biden in response to his forming the task force with an executive order. So there were hundreds of recommendations that came out of that work. And it's been fortunate enough to see, I think, over 80% of those recommendations be taken up by the Biden administration and taken for action, including support for state, local, and tribal initiatives that were recommended. But this Health Plus long COVID work we're doing now actually in part indirectly came from that work that we did last year and further investment that was made towards HHS, towards uh, understanding the experiences of those with long COVID. So it feels like a double relief to us to help put together some set of recommendations and help facilitate with some brilliant task force members and leaders discussions on the types of problems that COVID-19 was creating and like exacerbating inequities across the United States. And then to not just have it end with recommendations, but to be a part of follow-up work and in making those experiences even more real and generating solutions. So can we get like practical when you say, what is the follow-up work and what is making those solutions more real? Yeah, right now with Help Us Long Code, we're in the process of synthesizing the research down. And so we've got draft journey maps of the long COVID experience and sense of the kind of archetypes and the really those struggles and opportunities that the community is facing. And we're still writing out the robust report, but we'll be engaging with uh, many that we've spoken to throughout the research so far and validating those problem areas and then brainstorming the types of solutions that will make a difference. And already through our research, we've gotten, you know, just people volunteering stuff that they know, you know, payment methods, uh, clear connection between COVID diagnosis and identification of the risk of, you know, long COVID and awareness. But past cycles, just to give you even more concrete examples, since we don't have those just yet, we're kind of midstream for Lyme disease. Some of the solutions included folks came up with preventative wearables to prevent tick bites, as well as marketing communications materials to help people understand that having a tick bite, it's not just checking it once and getting one quick treatment. There are things they should be on the lookout for that might be a sign of chronic Lyme disease, as well as really in-depth policy changes to spaces like preventing the spread related to climate change as it's kind of increasing the tick-borne areas further north every single year and um, creating greater awareness in cities where ticks hadn't been uh, prominent before uh, about their increased prominence and to digital apps that would help those who had Lyme disease track their ailments and be better prepared to share those kind of journal entries and that data with their physicians and healthcare providers to get faster treatment and kind of make the case for new community treatments or to connect with others uh, so that they could get around some of the 
the challenges and the gaslighting that still unfortunately happen in the medical institutions where where folks are kind of navigating diagnosis and treatment. That's really powerful. And it really helps me to have you draw out those concrete examples for me because it's digital applications, it's wearables, it's messaging and information, and it it all is, you know, to combat disinformation and also can be used in understanding climate change and all of the various effects of climate change and then also can affect policy. Like it's very, very... So wide. (laughs) So wide. And yet I can see why this is very meaningful to you. And I'm glad that you're able to sort of stay involved in the process through to have some follow through and implementation because that tangibility is a real motivator. Absolutely. And we know that there's only so much we can do as a company. So a good part of our responsibility throughout a process like this is engaging a diverse, invested set of folks who are who directly have a stake in this for varied reasons, connecting them, building empathy and connection across their groups and helping them see the areas where they have shared interests so that they can continue to invest in one another's initiatives, follow each other's work and that these have a longer life cycle than you know any one of our programs could, right? So it can be a real launch pad to collaboration. And with that, we're really thoughtful to you know, not create forums that we can't maintain and really go where people are and where this work is already a priority and then just help build those bridges and build a greater understanding of the needs. I'm really glad you said that phrase, building bridges, because I that's what my brain is is showing me as we're talking. It's a lot of building bridges, but it's also a lot of deconstructing of barriers. It's all happening, but what is your most utilized or most important tool or skill in the kit for doing all of that barrier deconstructing and, and bridge building? A lot of it comes down to as simple as it is just listening. I think not enough credence has been given to the lived experiences of communities and some of the communities we work with, you know, sovereign tribal nations, the kind of black sickle cell disease community, um, those with chronic illnesses and, and disabilities, their lived experiences are not listened to enough. There are a lot of people who want to create solutions for them. And of course, the disability community has been saying kind of nothing about us without us for quite some time. Yes. Uh, But like really putting that into practice in the work that we're doing by first listening to and taking our lead from the communities that we intend to support. And often that means taking on clients who are part of those communities and just being as thoughtful about how we can do that from contract and relationship building to execution and closing and promoting as we as we can be. So it's simple, but once you start unraveling it, there's so much more work to be done in figuring out how you can truly listen and kind of humble oneself and take another's lead and shift those power dynamics to to be open and really receiving what is being given by another community. I'm glad you said that. I mean, you said it's simple, but I I don't actually think it's simple. I think 
It is simple in that the idea of listening to one another should be a simple concept, but it's actually, it requires a kind of adaptability because you have to be also ready to hear what they're saying and not just continue with your action plan that you had in place before you heard what they were saying. I also think there's, personally speaking, there are times when I've not been heard or when I've been gaslit and when... I have been actually heard. It's incredibly healing. Yeah, it's so true. We get a sense of that all of the time in uh, the research that we're doing. And it enables people to come together around these things to really hear one another. It takes unlearning, though, so much of what we think we already know. And I think that's well, well said because it seems like a simple notion, but it is really kind of lifelong work and application. Do you use this listening in your personal life? Has it improved your own personal relationships? And then even deeper than that, do you listen to yourself as carefully as you listen to others? I have taken it to heart, I think for better or for worse in my personal life, down to, I think I've I've started to get a bit of a, more of a public platform. And so I make myself open and accessible, but I'm also a very analytical person and um, a very private person. And so sometimes those have conflicted. I've, I've had like Gen Z folks be like, all right, I, you know, heard a talk you gave and I've got thoughts on it. And I'm like, okay, shoot, <laughs> I want to hear it. I'm like, oh, and like some of this is helpful. And some of this, I don't know if it's helpful to me. Like there's just so many layers to unpack on applying some of these practices personally. So I've actually learned where for myself personally, I need to put up some walls. I think there's a lot of societal pressure right now to treat each voice the same. And it's a hard balance. I'm probably not even going to be able to clearly articulate this as well as I'd like to, but I think it's a, it's a far in balance of doing the work, continuing after the work and not looking for necessarily that group validation, but also being a continual learner and um, listening to feedback and continuing to evolve because there's so much learning um, and unlearning that's necessary as part of this process. And I'm definitely still getting a feel for it. And I have overwhelmed myself by opening the floodgates (laughs) really wide in the past. Oh, uh, I can see how that would happen. (laughs) Yeah. And then there is also the very real need to like manage your energy and not be able responsible for everybody else's energy. And also some feedback's not very useful, but there's also only so much you can take and incorporate and actually process without it just becoming too much noise. And there's tons of trauma and stuff. Other folks are unpacking too, right? There's so many layers to it. I do think that some of this best listening and really hearing work happens when there are teams and when there's space for unpacking some of those traumas, some of the, we're talking about this in Coforma now, but unpacking some of those secondary traumas that can arise from it, um, making sure that there are some outlets for that processing. And so that's something I'm taking really seriously and trying to find for myself. Also as somebody that has fallen privy, like kind of prey to that idea of needing external validation, 
that should not be what it's about, but it can easily become that in the world of, you know, so much social media and likes and clicks and, you know, just that drive to make other people happy, which, you know, I realizing can't, can't be it for me. I'm about making an impact and improving lives and doing that in a way that's authentic and real for me and still having some, some privacy and some space at the same time. Yeah. I mean, have you ever fallen prey to the feel like you need to fix or heal or immediately have a positive impact on someone who's suffering in a way that maybe is beyond what really is appropriate for you to be doing? I will say my mother is one of the most giving people I have ever met. And so it's easy for me to kind of be able to use her as an example. She used to like stop on our way to church and like pick up somebody who needed help and like go miles out of her way. Even when we didn't have any money to support somebody in need, she's often bringing, you know, even just going to visit her for a short period of time, like bringing somebody home from the grocery store because they were hungry. Oh. <laughs> you know, you're like, oh, not, I don't think many people would do that. That is, right. that is a choice <laughs> that, that you made. Okay. As generous as that is, I think I've learned a ton from her positive in that spirit of generosity and giving that's clearly deeply embedded in who I am, but also learned some boundaries for myself and ways that sometimes those activities can deprioritize others in one's life that are important or can lead to some, I think, accidental trade-offs. So just being really intentional in what is a priority in any given moment and making the investments as thoughtful as possible and give you like a real literal tangible example but mm-hmm. my husband and I chose the last name Axios because it means uh, weighted or kind of having kind of weighted value and it's a reminder for us to do just that but to use our time intentionally for the things that are going to make an impact and to weigh those decisions really thoughtfully and we do that together and try to use the last name as a reminder. Well, even choosing your own last name is a really intentional act. For us, it came more naturally than perhaps folks would expect because he's also a designer by trade. And so we were thinking as we were getting ready to get married about our values and who we wanted to be. And it sort of naturally turned into a creative brief. <laughs> Just like... You know, made like, for each other. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, like we are trying to figure out, you know, name stuff, and it feels like such a sometimes gendered choice. And we're unpacking some of those layers. And he had a name that was changed when his family came to the United States. And I had a very common generic last name prior. Um, and I also had middle names, one for my mom, one for my dad. So I'm like, they're both represented. <laughs> yeah. They're not erasing anyone. Yeah, Yeah, they're they're covered. So yeah, it gave us the space to be able to just explore a last name that would have meaning for us. And that's how that came about. I like that. Yeah. And I love how intentionally you're living your life and spending your energy and directing your all the creative energy and labor you have to give to the world, being very focused and intentional with that. And I really appreciate that. And uh, I guess my last question for you would be is, 
What are you intentionally focusing on in terms of your future? Like, what are you steering yourself toward? Well, I think, especially in the United States, we can get focused on just our our labor for economy, for enterprise, for for all of that. So some things I'm working on totally on myself, totally separate from any of that are exercising, fitness goals, kind of reading and just from a variety of, of authors who inspire me across different disciplines and genres and loving it and just finding time for family, especially as this pandemic continues and there's so much happening in the world, just investing in the people around me who I love really deeply. So those aren't the big splashy things, but they're, I think what has me really excited and feeling like I'm in a totally new evolution for myself and owning the work and then clearly owning those things that are not at all labor in this next phase of life. I think that's a really important aspect of keeping yourself a balanced human (laughs) and a balanced human that's able to keep contributing without burning out, but also that's able to actually like actively try to enjoy the beauty of this lived experience. Yeah. I think what's the phrase like joy is an act of resistance, right? Like even that is, you know, when there's so much weight in this world is just a beautiful and an intentional thing to do. So making room for that, especially in times when it's hard and our rights might get stripped away. (laughs) We've, We've got to make those investments. Well, thank you for making the investment with me today and with our listeners. I really, really enjoyed your story and I appreciate your candor. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, thanks so much for listening. For a transcript of this episode and more about Ashley, including images of her work and a bonus Q&A, head to cleverpodcast.com. If you can think of three people who would be inspired by Clever, please tell them. It really helps us out when you share Clever with your friends. You can listen to Clever on any of the podcast apps. Please do hit the follow or subscribe button in your app of choice so our new episodes will turn up in your feed. We love to hear from you on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and you can find me at Amy Devers. Please stay tuned for upcoming announcements and bonus content. You can subscribe to our newsletter at cleverpodcast.com to make sure you don't miss a thing. Clever is hosted and produced by me, Amy Devers, with editing by Rich Straffolino and production assistance from Alana Nevins and Anushka Stefan, and music by L1011.